This is a Rooster Teeth production. November 12th, 1996. Saudi of Flight 763, a Boeing 747 with 312 people on board, has just taken off from Indira Gandhi Airport in Delhi, India, bound for Dharan, Saudi Arabia. While climbing out through 14,000 feet, the crew requests to continue their climb, but are instructed to wait at 14,000 feet. The reason for the delay is that Kazakhstan Airlines 1907, an Aleutian IL-76 with 37 people on board, is on approach about to land at Delhi after a flight from Shimkent, Kazakhstan. The Kazakhstan Airlines flight is instructed to descend to 15,000 feet so the two planes will pass each other safely with 1,000 feet between them. Despite the safety precautions, the two planes collide, creating a huge ball of fire and plummet to the ground, killing all on board. What could have caused the two aircraft to veer directly into each other? Did the pilots use proper measurements? Were communications with air traffic control open and clear? Find out what led to this fatal encounter in the sky on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. I sound maybe a little haggard, but that's just because I'm getting over a cold. But I feel great. You sound you sound a little hoarse. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd say you sound pony. Get it? <laughs> you, you don't have to laugh for that. This no, no, no. <laughs> no, that's good. It's also a cough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You're just trying to cover it up. Yeah. I got it. Before we dive into it, of course, I want to remind everyone to give us a follow on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Black Box Down Pod. We post lots of images, supplemental content on there. And if you'd like, you can check out blackboxdownpod.com to learn more about uh, getting the episodes early and ad-free for only $2.99 a month. Again, that's blackboxdownpod.com. And any support like that helps us make the show, so we appreciate it very, very much. Yeah, it goes directly to supporting the show as well as uh, merchandise. Is that what you were about to say? Yeah! I was going to say merchandise. <laughs> we also have some merchandise. Uh, you can find that linked in our link tree, which is curated mm-hmm. by Chris. Yeah, um, I'm wearing I'm wearing the Autopilot logo shirt right now. It's very comfortable. I would highly recommend. I wore the Your Bad Attitude Has Upset Me Yesterday. Uh, yeah. It, it's dirty. I should have saved it for today. Yeah, makes a great gift if you're thinking about Christmas stuff. Oh, yeah. It's about that time, isn't it? So you can go to store.roosterteeth.com to look for it, or you can uh, look at the links in our link tree on social media. Yeah. Anyway, today... So we're talking about two planes. Uh, I'm going to give some background on both of them before we really dive into it. The first one I mentioned was Saudi Arabian Airlines Flight 763. Uh, It's a Boeing 747. It was departing from Delhi as part of scheduled international Delhi to Dharan to Jeddah passenger service. Had 312 people on board. So going from India to Saudi Arabia. It was under the command of Captain Khalid Al-Shubayli, who's a veteran pilot, had 9,837 flying hours. So lots of experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, the first officer was Nazir Khan, and the flight engineer was Ahmed Edris. They had a flight engineer. 1996. Oh, well, it's 1996. This is also an older 747, so had you know still had the flight engineer in it. Okay. Man, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get sidetracked here for a second. Okay. Some of those early 747s. It's it's crazy to think about how much technology has advanced and how quickly it advanced. Uh-huh. Some of those early 747s, you know, when they're out flying over the ocean, like say over the middle of the Atlantic or over the Pacific, there's no like especially back then, there's no easy way for them to determine where they are, right? There's before GPS, there's no radio beacons in the middle of the ocean. Do you ever yeah. think about that? Like, how do they know where they're going when they're just like a ship out over the water? Yeah, would they like, I don't know, it's like, look at the stars. <laughs> You're right, Chris. Some of those early 747s had sextant ports, so they could put a sextant out the roof of the cockpit and uh, look at the stars and navigate by stars. So like a sunroof? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not not quite as big. <laughs> they wouldn't uh, <laughs> open it up entirely, but they would have like a little pop down sextant that they could like look outside and look at the stars and figure out where they were going. That's crazy too. And nowadays, of course, yeah, not necessary at all. Uh, with, thanks to GPS, it's crazy too. To think that they were doing that in the 90s. Yeah, I did. so they probably didn't have the sextant in the 90s. They still had uh-huh. the flight engineer. They probably had, and this was also a an little different. Uh, yeah, probably, when did the 747 launch? The early 70s? Probably, you know, even back then, they still had that. And this was, like I said, this was also an older 747. It was a 100 series. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what made me think about it. So it sparked the, uh, <laughs> the thought in my head. So this particular plane was a 747-100B so it wasn't like one of the launch planes, but it was an early 747. These, I believe, were all built around 1979, 1980. Okay. So it was probably 16, 17 years old at this time. So it wasn't all the way back from the 70s. It wasn't like a launch 747, mm-hmm. but it was still a pretty old plane, comparatively speaking. Yeah. And we're all, we're really distracted now. Anyway, <laughs> there was a flight engineer on the flight. There were 23 people that were crew members and 289 passengers on board. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. It's a 747. These are big planes. The aircraft departed Delhi Airport at 1.03 p.m. Universal Time, which is 6.33 p.m. India Time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give both times for a little while, but we're really going to focus on Universal Time. Okay. FYI, India Time, it's confusing. India Time is plus five and a half hours from Universal Time. Oh. Yeah, normally it's an even hour. It's plus five and a half. So it was 1.03 Universal Time, 6.33 p.m. India Time. So... They were cleared for runway 28, and they were cleared via the ATS route G452. And before the collision, Delhi Approach instructed them to maintain flight level 140, which is 14,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Like I said, you know, they were departed, and they had requested to go higher, but air traffic control knew another flight was coming in, and the goal was have Saudi Arabia fly out at 14,000 feet and then climb, and have the Kazakhstan Airlines plane fly in at 15,000 feet and then descend. That way they kept... A thousand feet between them at the minimum, and then you know yeah. would safely pass each other until they pass each other. Then say, okay, now you can go up, right? right. And the Kazakhstan Airlines could continue their descent. And I imagine that's pretty standard protocol, right? Yeah, and we've talked about this before. The plane that's departing westbound is going at an even flight level. The plane coming mm-hmm. eastbound is at an odd flight level, and they hold there. And of course, they're going to have to continue their climb and their descent, so that they're going to break that. But for now, they're holding at their appropriate levels. Yeah, it, it, it's the right and left lane of the skies. <laughs> exactly. So speaking of the Kazakhstan Airlines flight, you know, that was flight 1907. It was an Ilyushin IL-76, so Russian-made plane. Uh, and it was on a charter service from Chimkent Airport in Kazakhstan. Ilyushin? Ilyushin, I-L-Y-U-S-H-I-N. It's a Russian-made plane. Okay. And it's a smaller plane? Yeah, it's a bit smaller. I don't know as much about Russian-made planes as I do about Boeing and Airbus and you know other other countries' manufactured planes. But uh-huh. the Ilyushin IL-76 was initially like a military plane that they sometimes would kind of retrofit into uh, being able to carry passengers. But it's you know a four-engine plane, uh, high wing, could hold a decent number of people. But this particular flight was, like I said, was a charter. Didn't have a ton of people. It had 27 passengers on board uh, and 10, 10 crew members. I just looked it up. It's a weird looking plane. It's a little weird. Yeah. It's got like a, like a lower cockpit looking thing. Yeah. Um, so uh, like I said, remember this, this is a, it was originally developed like a military uh, uh-huh. plane. So some of them you can kind of look down for like bombing runs, for example. Oh, that's why there's like windows at the bottom of the... Yeah, I don't n- know necessarily that this was developed as a bomber, mm-hmm. but I mean, that's just one example. It could also be to see, you know, if they're flying into, like a military plane might fly mm. into 
an unimproved runway, like a dirt yeah. strip or something. So just to be able to see down a little better. Not something you necessarily need typically with commercial passenger planes. Okay. The wings are also at the top of the fuselage instead of the bottom, like you, like you see lots of times. Yeah. Makes it kind of look like its shoulders are hunched. <laughs> yeah. They, so we're not going to get into that. This is like much more deep dive than we typically talk about. But they call that, I believe it's called anhedral wings when they're at the top, kind of pointed down like that versus what you normally used to are called dihedral wings when they're at the bottom of the plane and they kind of like slope up. Uh, just two different ways to, to mount the wings onto the plane with different characteristics, different pluses and minuses. Just so people listen, can we post a picture of this, uh, yeah, of this guy? Absolutely. And lots of times in military planes, you'll see, I, I don't want to make too many like gross oversimplifications, but lots of times in military planes, you'll see an anhedral design like this so that the engines can be mounted up further away from the ground. Again, if they're landing like on a dirt mm. field or an unimproved runway, it's less chance for yeah. debris to get sucked into the engine. Okay. Man, okay, this is the episode filled with distractions, huh? Uh, <laughs> so they left Kazakhstan bound for Delhi. They were under the command, uh, we're talking about the Kazakhstan flight. They were under the command of Captain Alexander Cherepanov, also very experienced with 9,229 flight hours. First officer, Ermek Zangirov. Flight engineer, Alexander Chuprov. They also had a navigator, Zanakbek Aripbev. And they also had a radio operator, Igor Rep. Uh, again, this is a military plane, so mm. a few more stations, a few more people, or I guess it was originally a military plane. They got retrofitted, so a little bit more of a crew than you would normally expect in like a commercial flight. The passenger manifest was mostly Russian Kyrgyz citizens planning to go uh, shopping in India, like uh, Kyrgyzstan. Okay. Like I said, 10 crew members, 27 passengers. And like I said earlier, Delhi Approach instructed it to maintain flight level 150. So they're coming in high. Saudi Arabia is going to go low under them. Both flights were in contact with the same approach controller, VK Dutta. And I don't know how much you think about this or our listeners might think about this, but you know these are common frequencies. It's not like every plane has a discrete frequency to talk with air traffic control. There's like a frequency that everyone, like let's say everyone departing this side of the airport is going to use this frequency unless you get handed off to a different one. So they were both talking to the same controller on the same frequency. So they can hear each other talking to the controller as well as everyone else in that area. Well, and that seems helpful too, because you know who is in your area, who you're right. dealing with, right? Like, oh, there's this plane coming here. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there's Makes no sense. there's no like radar on the plane. So it helps build a mental picture of what's going on. You can kind of keep track like, oh, this plane's here, that plane's there. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, air traffic control kind of guides you around and makes sure uh, you're safe. At about 110 universal time, again, which is 640 India time, VK Dutta, who's a controller, warned the Kazakhstan mm -hmm. flight to be on the lookout for the Saudi Arabian's flight ahead of them, traveling in the opposite direction. I believe what he said was traveling on the reciprocal, so opposite direction, a thousand feet below them and 10 miles ahead of them. He got initial confirmation that they were looking for the traffic. And then VK Dutta tried contacting the flight again, but received no response because by then it was too late. There was actually a third aircraft in the area at the time. It was a United States Air Force aircraft that was flying from Islamabad to Delhi. Uh -huh. And the pilot for that flight reported he saw a cloud light up with an orange glow uh, at the oh, two o'clock no. position from his aircraft. He said at first he thought it was lightning. And near the base of the cloud, he saw two fireballs diverging from each other, which then proceeded to hit the ground. That's crazy. Yeah, he called Delhi Approach and communicated, we saw something to our right. Looks like a big fireball or something. Looks like a big explosion. He continued, we see two fires trying to break to our right about 44 miles to your northwest. 
Soon thereafter, passing through, we saw a big fireball in the cloud and I saw fire debris, two distinct fires on the ground. Oh, and that's, man. of course, when the radar controller at Delhi realizes that a midair collision had taken place. So did he see, he said he saw it like through a cloud or they were in a cloud? Right. The United States Air Force flight was in visual conditions, so they could see outside. But he mm-hmm. said he saw the fireball in a cloud. In a cloud. Correct. Good. Mm-hmm. Excellent question, Chris. You've, uh, you've learned a lot <laughs> doing these episodes. Villagers who also witnessed the collision reported there was at first an earth shattering sound which shook the entire village. The doors and windows of the houses were shattered and glass panes were strewn all around. Holy crap. That's something that actually can happen? Yeah, it was really violent. (laughs) Wow. Frightened families believing it was an earthquake came out of their houses and they saw a huge ball of fire had engulfed the sky and the two planes fell off in different directions to turn into debris all scattered in an area a few kilometers in the fields. That's So they were 14,000-ish feet in the air and they shattered the glass down below? Yeah, it seems, so I don't want to say that didn't happen. To me, that seems a little extreme. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> almost three miles away. Uh-huh. That would be a crazy explosion. It's possible. I don't want to say it's impossible. It's definitely possible. That's just really wild to me. Again, we've talked about before, sometimes eyewitnesses aren't entirely accurate. It's definitely possible that happened. That, that seems crazy to me. Yeah, it may, may not have been like every glass in the area. Right. Maybe just. Or like I, I could also see it being maybe when the planes hit the ground, you know, maybe mm. they remember the timeline wrong, but just happening from the explosion, you know, almost three miles in the air, that seems a little far to me, but I'm just reading what's in the report and what the, the official accounts are. Okay. I don't want to editorialize yeah, too much yeah. there. I felt like I was, I was getting into my own opinion a little too much there. So the wreckage of both aircraft were found spread in a trail of around seven kilometers, which is what, like 4.2 miles. Yeah. And in a width of about two kilometers, this is all about 40 miles west of the airport in New Delhi. Black boxes from both aircraft were retrieved from the site of the accident. Cockpit voice recorder and flight data recorder, the Saudi aircraft, as well as the two black boxes from the Kazakh aircraft, been found intact and mostly undamaged. So, of course, it seems pretty straightforward what happened. But, of course, the big question is, why did this happen? Yeah. How? How, right? So, was it the air traffic controller who gave bad directions? Was it the pilots? You know, if was it both pilots? Was it one pilot? Was there a malfunction? Yeah, instruments. Right. There's a lot of questions to be dug through. So, you know, the first thing the investigation does is they go through the recordings that the air traffic control has with the planes, you know, with the pilots to talk, to see what was the communication like and was there any communication breakdown? And they find actually no evidence of any breakdown of communication between Delhi air traffic control and the two aircraft at any stages of their flight. Hmm. So right away, they, they, can, they can pretty early on, they're able to say, we don't think the air traffic controller is at fault here. I bet that guy was real happy to hear that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure he was. I can't imagine uh, how awful that's got to be if you're the air traffic controller and then this happens on your watch. Just be like, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? Like, just, Right. Uh. So there was a flight plan that was filed at the Chimkent airport before departures for the Kazakhstan flight. And the same was received by the air traffic services at Delhi before the Kazakhstan flight came in contact on the radio. The aircraft was initially cleared by area control west of Delhi, approach controller VK Dutta, to descend to flight level 250 at 1258. And then subsequently at 103, it was cleared to descend to flight level 180 and was asked to report passing through flight level 200. So they were at 25,000 feet. They're cleared down to 18,000 and they're told to report when they pass through 20,000. When passing through flight level 240 at 105, 
the aircraft was asked to change over to Delhi approach on frequency 127.9. So all this is very standard. You know, they're uh-huh. coming in, told to report, they have a frequency change. This is very standard. When you're flying, like for example, coming into Austin, if you're flying into Austin here, you, you, you're talking to approach initially, then you get handed off to final approach, and then you get handed off to tower. So you, change, you have three different frequencies before you come into land, for example. And that's just here at Austin. And you might have different ones along the way. And at a busier airport, you could change more, more frequently. How busy is this airport? Delhi at the time uh, was seeing a lot of growth. The airport was seeing quite a big uptick in passengers. I want to say at the time they were doing about 25 million passengers a year, which is just over 2 million a month. That's a, pr- that's a pretty busy airport. Okay. It's not like the busiest airport in the world or anything, but that's a major airport. That's okay. very busy. So at 105, the Kazakhstan flight contacted Delhi Approach, reported passing through flight level 230, 74 miles from the Delhi VOR. The VOR is like the radio navigation aid. Delhi Approach further cleared the aircraft to descend to flight level 150 with the instructions to report reaching level 150. At 110, in reply to a query from Approach, Kazakh 1907 reported reaching flight level 150 on radial 270. What that means is they reported reaching 15,000 feet on a radial 270, which means they're directly west of the airport. West is like 270 degrees on a radial. So they're flying eastbound into the airport, directly west of the VOR at 15,000 feet. And at this time, the aircraft was identified by radar and advised to maintain flight level 150. Okay. Traffic information on reciprocal Saudi 747 aircraft, 12 o'clock at 10 miles, likely to cross in another five miles, was also passed at this time. And this is the warning I had told you about before that air traffic control tells them. There's a flight coming directly at you. Mm-hmm. 12 o'clock, it's at 10 miles, going to cross um, in another five miles. Kazakh 1907 acknowledged this, and they asked for the distance of the traffic again. To this approach replied, traffic's at eight miles now, flight level 140. Kazakh 1907 acknowledged the distance information of traffic at eight miles and said they were looking for traffic. And this was the last transmission from the Kazakhstan aircraft. How much was this distance, in, the change in distance in that amount of time? Two miles. So it went from 10 to 8. Remember, these planes are going very fast and they're going directly at each other. So yeah, the distance closes extremely quickly. So at the time, the Delhi air traffic controller had what they call primary radar. Like I'm sure you picture in your mind when you think about air traffic control, you know, it's like a person sitting at a large screen with all like the blips on it and they can see them all moving to each other. Uh Primary radar. So we live in a three-dimensional world, right? So you primary (laughs) radar. In meat world. Yeah, meat world. Primary radar gives essentially X and Y coordinates of where a plane is, but no Z. So it can show them where the plane is, but doesn't tell them what the altitude of the plane is. Yeah. So you can see blips converging, but you don't, they could be at different altitudes. You don't know. You need secondary radar for that. So that's why, you know, he, the, from the air traffic control perspective, he can see the blips converging. And that's uh-huh. why he's telling them, you need to be at 15,000. You need to be at 14,000. And it's on the pilots to maintain that separation so that the blips can pass each other or the planes can pass each other safely. And when you say secondary radar, do they have a Z-axis radar that just goes up and down? Well, a lot of that information, the altitude information, is conveyed by transponders, which we've talked about before. They do call it secondary radar, and the secondary radar does give them altitude information. So that's also, I'm sure, in your mind, when you're thinking about their traffic control looking at the screen, you also might think of like the little flight number next to the blip, along with the speed and the altitude. Mm, okay. That's what secondary radar gives you. So, because you, you're, you're trying to interpret a three-dimensional world onto a two-dimensional screen. Yeah. So you can't show the altitude. That's why you have to have like a little number or like a little 
figure telling you what it is because there's no way to display what the altitude is without just showing you a number. Yeah. And in fact, secondary radar was scheduled to have been installed at Delhi two weeks before this accident, but it was behind schedule. It was still actually packed up in the boxes. So they didn't have secondary radar data. Still in the boxes. Oh, Yeah. They they had it. They knew they needed Uh. it. They had it. It just hadn't been installed yet. So what happened is these planes converged and as the Kazakhstan flight, you know, went through this, um, and I, I will post a photo of it as well. It has uh, a high, you know, the what they call a T-style tail, where the horizontal stabilizer on top of the vertical stabilizer. It's got like that T, uh, it looks like a capital T. Mm-hmm. This also chopped off the horizontal stabilizer of that Saudi aircraft, and at the same time also cut off the horizontal stabilizer from the T-tail of the Kazakhstan aircraft. So that's why they both lost control. They both lost their horizontal stabilizer at the same mm-hmm. time, and then they both uh, went down. The crippled Saudi Boeing 747 lost control and went into a rapidly descending spiral with fire trailing from the wing. Uh, and the aircraft broke up in midair before crashing into the ground at nearly supersonic speed of oh, 1,135 kilometers an hour, which is 705 miles an hour or 613 knots. The Aleutian remained structurally intact as it entered a steady but rapid and uncontrolled descent until it crashed in a field. Hmm. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime anywhere at your own pace. Uh, for example, you could learn songwriting from John Legend, learn leading with a purpose uh, taught by Indra Nuyi, or learn how to draw and paint realistic portraits from Devin Rodriguez. With over 180 classes from a range of world-class instructors, the thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. I can't stress enough how diverse of a range of topics that there are you can learn from. Uh, I was blown away. I was able to watch cooking classes by Gordon Ramsay, uh, starting from everything, like even just as the basic things about laying out your kitchen, uh, starting with basics and building on it, or even uh, taking everyday things like scrambled eggs and elevating them. It was really amazing how deep the courses went and how thorough it was in explaining things all along the way. And that's just tip of the iceberg. There are so many different things you can uh, you can check out on there. And it's great because you don't have to necessarily sit down and consume the entire class start to finish. Uh, You can learn in individual lessons. For example, in the cooking lessons, maybe you only have time to watch one that's, you know, eight or nine minutes long. Easily doable. You can get to the other ones later when you have more time or just get little bits and pieces as you go through. Highly recommend you check it out. This holiday, give one annual membership, get one free. Go to masterclass.com slash blackboxdown today. That's masterclass.com slash blackboxdown. Terms apply. If you want to avoid boring, basic, and bland gifts this year, Uncommon Goods is your secret weapon. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable, truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for your secret Santa or your entire family, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. Personally, I've been keeping my eye on the stocking stuffer section. There's a lot of great stuff in there, whether it's little collegiate pouches, little koozies that look like jackets for your beverages, Christmas ornaments that are personalized with people's names, even banana saving hats to put on uh, the tops of banana bunches. It sounds confusing. Trust me, go check it out. Uh, when you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are often made in small batches, so shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the United States. They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts you can find just anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give back $1 to a nonprofit partner of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash blackboxdown. 
That's uncommongoods.com slash blackboxdown for 15% off. Don't miss out this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. It's a great time of year to get out, enjoy the outdoors, uh, maybe your backyard, uh, maybe have some friends over, making s'mores. And there's nothing quite like the feeling of gathering around a warm fire on a cool evening and a smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove makes your outdoor moments even more memorable because instead of having to constantly dodge campfire fumes, you can sit back, relax, and actually enjoy the fire. And during Solo Stove's early deals event, you can get a great deal on a Solo Stove fire pit. I absolutely love this smokeless design. One of the big drawbacks I always thought to having a, a fire or a fire pit was just the smoke and the bad smell and how it sticks on you, gets in your hair, uh, your clothes reek. The smokeless design uh, by Solo Stove is great. You don't have that smoke constantly following you around wherever you go. And it just really helps create a warm environment uh, in the backyard. You can really gather around and just talk and hang out with uh, your family, your friends. So you can upgrade your backyard with a Solo Stove fire pit, create story-worthy moments without fireside fumes, stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow and burn more efficiently. There's so little smoke, you'll wonder how there's so much fire. It's the perfect catalyst for getting outside and spending more time with family and friends. Build lasting memories around a Solo Stove fire pit. They're brilliantly engineered to be easy to use. They're built to last. Easy to light with just a few bits of starter. Your fire is blazing in minutes. They're so confident you'll love it. They offer a lifetime warranty and a 30-day free return policy. So let the gifting begin. Shop Solo Stove's early deals event for huge site-wide savings. Get $10 off with promo code BLACKBOXDOWN plus a lifetime warranty and free 30-day returns. Get an extra $10 off holiday deals at solostove.com using promo code BLACKBOXDOWN. So the Air Accident Investigation Bureau analyzed the data retrieved from the Kazakhstan flight uh, data recorder and concluded that their recorded altitude at the time of the, this is the big question, right? The recorded altitude at the time of the collision was 14,100 feet, but found expected tolerances in the measurement and recordings as plus or minus 500 feet. Oh. The actual altitude was likely to have been between 13,600 and 14,600 feet. Oh, so the Kazakhstan flight was way low. Way, low. Way uh, even, low, even if you account for worst case error in that instrument and recording. Immediately yeah. prior to the collision, the Saudi 747 aircraft recorded an altitude of 13,900 feet with an accuracy of plus or minus 120 feet. So that's right on. Right. This would mean the true altitude at collision was between 13,780 and 14,020 feet. And remember, yes, the Saudi flight was supposed to be at 14,000 feet. The Kazakh flight was supposed to be at 15,000 feet. These planes are like... Height-wise, right, are maybe 50 feet high, right? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, look that up. I'm just like, how much range of error they should have, right? I mean, it should be like 10 planes or, or 20 planes between each other. So the tail height of uh -huh. uh, a 747 is roughly 63 feet. Okay. That's huge. Yeah. But 1,000 feet, that's like room for, what, 15 of them? Plenty of wiggle room. Yeah. So the Air Accident Investigation Bureau made a comparison of recorded altitudes with the expected values on the accident flight takeoff and cruise levels on several flights and found that at the collision altitude, the 747 was underreading by 100 feet, which was actually, I mean, it sounds bad, but that's within the expected tolerance level. Yeah, and, and that's why there's a thousand feet between them. Right. <laughs> Even if the instruments are a little <laughs> off, it, it gives you a buffer. So it follows that the 747 was at 14,000 feet. So flight level 140. Mm -hmm. So they were at the correct altitude. It's like all, all this is to say they're like narrowing it down. Like even with any potential error, anything going wrong, the 747 was, was at the correct altitude. Maybe slightly off, but not any significant amount. Nothing. If they were off, they were a little low, right? Maybe. But even within the correctional factor, yeah. they were pretty much 
straight on or, or at the correct altitude. So, of course, now Kazakhstani officials start saying that the Kazakhstan flight had descended while their pilots were fighting turbulence inside the bank of clouds. Remember, they collided inside the clouds. Oh, yeah. So the Kazakhstan, of course, is saying that it wasn't their fault, that there was bad weather, that it forced them down and they were trying to fight it. So now, of course, the question is, is that the case? Is that true? Yeah. Why is the Kazakhstan flight at a flight level it shouldn't be at? But, and if they are, they should communicate it. Right. Yeah. Then tell air traffic control what's going on. So in the Kazakhstan cockpit at just before 110, it's at 109 and 57 seconds, an intra-cockpit utterance of hold the level from one of the crew, which probably the radio operator, mm-hmm. uh, alerted the pilot in command who inquired two seconds later, which is 18 seconds before the collision. What level were we given? Oh, no. They weren't listening. Right. This shows the total lack of situational awareness, which is very unexpected in a commander, like on the pilot of this plane. Yeah. So, I mean, that's pretty much a a, a smoking gun, right? Like at that point, you can't say it was turbulence and they're fighting it. When one of the people is saying, hold the level, and the person flying the plane asks, what level were we given? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, now the commission determines that the accident had been the fault of the Kazakhstani IL-76 commander who had descended from the assigned altitude of 15,000 feet to 14,500 feet and then 14,000 feet and then even lower. What were they doing? Right. Like I said, the vertical stabilizer from the Aleutian flight went through the wing and the horizontal stabilizer of the Saudi Arabian flight, which implies that the Kazakhstan flight was lower. Oh, yeah. If you think about just the geometry and the way that all that lines up, that means that even though they were assigned 15,000 feet, they hit a plane at 14,000 feet from the bottom. Wow. So according to the investigation report, the cause of the collision was the fact that the Kazakhstan Airlines was flying below 15,000 feet, according to flight data recorder of both aircraft, probably as low as 14,100 feet. The reason that the Kazakh plane was at the altitude was the weather conditions at the time. There were two weather conditions that affected the Kazakh crew's ability to avoid the collision. There were clouds which prevented the aircraft from seeing each other, mm-hmm. and both aircraft entered turbulence immediately before the collision, which in the case of the Kazakh aircraft forced it down by as much as 1,000 feet. Okay, I, I, I kind of disagree with that, but I'm going to read a little more, and then I'll, okay. I'll circle back to that. <laughs> Contributing causes for the collision and the main reason the Kazakhstan crew were unable to avoid the collision were the shortcomings of the air traffic control system of Delhi Airport and the failure of air traffic control to issue adequate and timely warning of the approach of the Saudi aircraft on a collision course and instruct both aircraft to perform a common and prudent collision avoidance measure. So I feel like the investigation reports being a little kind here. Mm-hmm. I think that... I, I, kind, again, well, I, I, kind, I, kind to Kazakhstan. Right. Not kind to the air traffic controller. Right. I, I hate editorializing. Like, I don't want to give mm-hmm. my opinion too much. Uh, obviously, because there's a report, there's an investigation here. This doesn't seem right to me. Regardless of this turbulence, it, it shouldn't push them down a thousand feet. That's ridiculous. And even once it starts pushing them down a little bit, they should be countering it to maintain the flight level they were given. And the fact that the commander asks, what flight level were we clear to? means that he, was, he had no situational awareness about what was going on. Yeah. It sounds like they were reacting to uh, turbulence and just like letting the plane go down without thinking about what that actually meant. Right. And I'm going to read this next paragraph, which kind of also sheds a little more light into it. The report ascribed the cause of this serious breach in operating procedure to the lack of English language skills on the part of the Kazakhstani aircraft pilots. 
lack of coordination in the cockpit and poor cockpit resource management procedures and communications together with confusion in the cockpit of the Cossack aircraft may provide the cause. They were relying entirely on their radio operator for communication with air traffic control. And their radio operator did not have his own flight instruments and had to look over the pilot's shoulders for a reading. So the pilots themselves didn't speak English. Only the radio operator did. So he would talk to the controller and then tell the pilots what to do. And he didn't have his own instruments to look at. If he wanted to know what altitude they were at, for example, he'd have to like turn his head and look over the pilot's shoulders to try to see what it was. And there are how many people? There were four of them in the... Yes. And only the radio operator could speak English. It just sounds messy. Yeah. So, you know, he's having to relay. It's like the telephone game, right? He's having to get the information, then tell them. And then, you know, it's that easy for him to verify. He doesn't have the instruments in front of him. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't know. He's just telling them. And the pilot couldn't hear the flight level instruction for himself. He had to listen to the radio operator, then forgot or wasn't paying attention, then had to ask, what was it? You know, he couldn't just reach out and ask himself. Yeah. He had to ask the radio operator. I think that's probably the most relevant cause uh, or the, the like the smoking gun in this instance yeah. of what happened and why this collision occurred. Also at the time, just to kind of set the stage a little bit, like I said, the Delhi airport was really seeing a lot of growth at the time. And there was, you know, we talked about this before. There's like airways, like ways that mm-hmm. traffic can fly in the sky. There was one major way in and out of the Delhi airport. So that's why a flight coming in was going at the same on, in the same area as a flight going out. There were no other airways around the airport for traffic to go. It's different now. Now there's multiple airways. So flights can be leaving in one direction and coming in uh, in another direction. But at the time, there was only one. So that's why they were flying mm. right at each other, which also kind of leads to potential safety problems. Not, again, it's one of those things where it's like, it's not dangerous on its own, but compounded with these other yeah. things starts yeah. to become dangerous. No secondary radar, a crew that can't speak English very well, a cloud that just happens to be there that makes you know visibility poor. It's like so many incidents we talk about. It's mm-hmm. a lots of little things that add up. If one of those things wasn't there, this you know accident have, yeah. would have been avoided entirely. Oh, oh, oh! And there's one, one more thing before I get to the findings. There's one uh-huh. more thing I, I forgot to mention earlier. I, I made a note, but I put it at the bottom of the uh, script. Uh, I scrolled down to look. So, like, like I said, they only had primary radar at air traffic control. So they only see you know where the plane is. They don't know what altitude it's at. They had to do that thing, which you might also think about when you imagine air traffic control, where they had those little flight strips and they had to write down what the altitudes were for the planes. Oh, So they had like a bunch of strips of paper in front of them with all the different flights and their altitudes. Uh, they had to like shuffle them around to keep track of which aircraft is at which altitude. That's, that's how, that sounds messy too. That's very messy. Yeah. Which is why they had secondary radar they were going to install, but oh. they hadn't installed it yet. And I get that. I have a, a, a bunch of like projects in my laundry room that I need to do. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that I was like, oh, I got to install this new lock for my back door at some point, you know, like it's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I just, it's just another thing I had remembered that I wanted to talk about and I forgot. Anyway, so the findings. The midair collision was not caused by sabotage, internal explosion, or by any cause external to the crew or the aircraft, obviously. Mm-hmm. The accident was not caused by any mechanical failure or mechanical defect of any of the two aircraft. Again, we know that after listening to all of this. Both the aircraft were fully airworthy and free from any mechanical or technical defect. So this is just like all the checks they have to go through. They're just letting you know that everything was fine with the planes. There was no sabotage. There's no technical reason that this incident should have occurred. The two aircraft collided at flight level 140. The Saudi 747 had been assigned flight level 140, whereas the Kazakh IL-76 was assigned flight level 150 for a safe crossing on the reciprocal tracks. 
Vertical separation of 1,000 feet for the crossing of the two aircraft as assigned by the Delhi Air Traffic Control was adequate uh, and met with the International Civil Aviation Organization standards of safety. The Saudi aircraft meticulously maintained flight level 140. So they're saying the Saudi, they got to their flight level and they, you know, they nailed it. They were exactly where they should have been. I, I feel really bad for them because they did they did they nothing did wrong. Nothing wrong. They were just doing what they're supposed to do, and then yeah. Mm-hmm. The Kazakh aircraft descended to flight level one four zero, departing from the assigned flight level one five zero just prior to the anticipated crossing. Yeah, that, that's the thing. They yeah, even their their flight path didn't tell them to be that low. Right. They right? Sh- they were supposed to be at one five zero, a yeah. thousand feet higher. Their their flight path didn't tell them to be that low, and there shouldn't be. At 14,000 feet going that direction anyway, right? Well, yeah, I think in their mind, they're descending, right? They're coming in they to have land. To at some point, cross that. Right. But they were not cleared for that yet. They were, mm-hmm. they, were, they were supposed to maintain that flight level still, the odd flight level since they're going east. The route and approximate cause of the collision was the unauthorized descending by the Kazakh aircraft to flight level 140 and failure to maintain the assigned flight level 150. The factors contributing to the unauthorized descent of the Kazakh aircraft to flight level 140 departing from the assigned flight level 150 were, there's four of these, inadequate knowledge of the English language by the Kazakh pilot resulting in wrong interpretations of air traffic control instructions, poor airmanship and lack of proper CRM skill on the part of the pilot in command compounded by leadership quality lacking in him. So poor airmanship is not being able to maintain your flight level. Mm. Yeah. Even if there's turbulence pushing you, you have to make, you fight it. You have to get onto your flight level for safety, obviously. Yeah. yeah. The next one, casual attitude of the crew and lack of coordination in the performance of their respective duties by crew of the Kazakh aircraft. Uh, the last one, absence of standard callouts from any crew member. Uh, they're referring to the Kazakh aircraft. You know, they should be calling these things out. You know, flight level 150, flight, then, you know, we've reached our flight level maintaining. You know, they should, that's all part of that crew resource management, which we've talked about so many times. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone needs to be communicating. Everyone needs to be double-checking, and you all need to be on the same page information-wise so to be as safe as possible. And have a system of communication. Right. Nearly 30 seconds before collision, both the aircraft had entered a cloud layer and experienced turbulence of weak to moderate intensity. The presence of the cloud did result in reduced visibility conditions, but the cloud did not cause any such severe turbulence as to result in abrupt loss of altitude to the extent of 1,000 feet pertaining to the level of the Kazakh aircraft. So this is a lot more clear than what they said earlier. I felt like earlier in the report, they were a little lenient about the turbulence. Here, yeah. they're, they're very clearly saying it was weak to moderate turbulence, and it was not severe enough to have caused abrupt loss of 1,000 feet. That, that shouldn't have happened. Air traffic control instructions to both aircraft were clear and proper and in accordance with established procedures. Direct pilot controller communication was not established by Kazakh 1907 with Delhi Air Traffic Control. Remember, we said they had to use the radio operator because the pilot couldn't speak English adequately. Mm -hmm. So the pilot was not directly talking to the controller. He had to rely on the radio operator. Presently, secondary radar is not available at Delhi Airport. This is back written, of course, when the report came out. But they they have it now. (laughs) Uh, Presently, secondary uh, radar is not available at Delhi Airport. However, installation of current generation radar, both primary and secondary, along with other air traffic control automated systems is already in progress. And we talked about that. They had the system. It just wasn't installed. Uh, At the time the report came out, they were still working on it. It did eventually get installed, and they have it now. Single air corridor at Delhi Airport was not a contributory factor for the accident. However, availability of unidirectional routes does enhance air traffic control's traffic handling capacity which is in the national interest. And this goes back to what I said before. There was only one corridor in and out for planes to take to the airport. 
Uh-huh. They've subsequently changed that so there's multiple air corridors. But And they're saying the fact there was a single corridor wasn't necessarily a contributory factor, but it does increase the workload of air traffic control. Mm. I don't know. I think I think it did contribute a bit. Not Obviously not directly. It didn't put them yeah. on the collision course, but it led to the circumstances that led to this accident. But the circumstances aren't in and of themselves dangerous. They're just... Correct. They just led to this incident. Then they had a couple other incidental findings here. Both Boeing 747 and Aleutian 76 were not equipped with airborne avoidance collision systems. Well, I know we've talked about the airborne avoidance systems where it tells them, you turn left, you turn right. Like, right. While they're flying at each other. Um, I couldn't remember when those were kind of widely spread throughout planes. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to get into. You you nailed it, Chris. You, you should you should host this podcast. So this, I mean, it, it's an interesting time, right? Like this, um, this technology did exist and was kind of new at the time. TCAS kind of started rolling out in the United States in the late '80s, like '89. Uh huh. However, it really didn't get full worldwide adoption until sometime later, and this was in that period before. That existed before TCAS. TCAS is the Traffic Collision Avoidance System. So, and that's what it's exactly what you said, where TCAS on two planes can negotiate with each other and say, you know, you two are on a collision course, you descend, you climb, or you turn left, you turn right. It, you know, navigates a solution and presents a solution to the pilots so that they avoid any collision. These two planes did not have any airborne avoidance collision systems. They still really hadn't been rolled out worldwide at this point. They were in that process. These were both slightly older planes. They probably hadn't been retrofitted yet. But this is like a fundamental technology nowadays that really keeps planes separated. You know, air traffic control already does that job. But worst case scenario, if two planes do begin converging, TCAS is that safety net that keeps planes from converging on each other and colliding. I think I realized I said that wrong. I said, you turn left, you turn right. That would both turn in the same directions, right? If they're oh, yeah, yeah. You both <laughs> turn left. <laughs> yeah, you are, you are right, aren't you? See, that's why we have TCAS, because I, yeah. I didn't catch it either. So on top of that, on top of neither aircraft having the collision avoidance system, the Aleutian 76 was not equipped with altitude alert system or altitude acquisition system, which, you know, would let them know when they start to deviate from mm. an assigned altitude. So it would have said, hey, hey, you're too low. Right. It's, it would be at the at the very least beep at them or something. Yeah. I've flown single engine Cessnas that have that. You you know, you dial in what your altitude's supposed to be. And if you start to drift a little too far from it, it goes like beep, 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 beep. You're like, oh, right. And then they, you quickly correct it. So they didn't even have that. So that's just how ubiquitous it is nowadays. You know, uh, yeah. even like a single engine propeller plane has that nowadays. And this passenger plane in 1996 didn't have that. So the report also said, had some kind of harsh things to say about air traffic control, not about this controller specifically, but about the way the system was set up in general at this airport. Like it was just too messy, like you, we were talking about, like too Yeah, busy. it wasn't great. Uh, they said, in view of the anticipated increase in air, remember I said they were growing a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, in view of the anticipated increase in air traffic, the present number of workstations is not considered adequate. So controllers were probably overworked. In India, there is no system, and this is at the time, in India, there is no system of licensing of air traffic controllers. Also, the proficiency standards, which are being followed in civil and military air traffic control, are not uniform. So they just wanted to get things licensed and up to standards there, which they subsequently have. Uh, In fact, I saw an interview with this VK Dutta, who was the controller at the time. He's like an instructor. He... Well, at the time, this a slightly older documentary I saw. At the time, he he was no longer an air traffic controller, but he was an instructor teaching like 
younger people how to become air traffic controllers and how to get proficient and be licensed to become air traffic controllers uh, in India. But yeah, that's it. That's um, Saudi Flight 763, Kazakhstan 1907. This was, I want to say this was the, this was the deadliest midair collision of all time. Whoa, really? Yeah. Um, maybe we talked about the Tenerife disaster, which more people passed away in, but that was an on-ground collision. And we talked about the Japan Airlines flight, which was the deadliest single plane incident. This is the this is the actual deadliest midair collision of all time. I guess it's surprising. It, there was one plane that had a lot of people, but the other plane, not that many at all. I guess it is that planes don't collide that often. Right, they don't collide that often, and you know, really, 747s just carry a lot of people. Yeah, and you know, one of these happened to be a 747. Even so, that's why it is the deadliest. Even though, what, like you said, one of the planes did not have a ton of people in it. I know, like this one sounds really scary. Two planes converging. You know, one pilot not maintaining their flight level. They don't see each other in the clouds and they collide. That's why I kind of want to stress over and over nowadays with secondary scan radar, like they know flight air traffic control knows how high a plane is. And in addition to that, TCAS is a safety net, which sits under there. There's now two systems designed to prevent this. Right. Or in every plane, right? Right. Uh, well, well, every, uh, every like a, landing. a commercial plane. Yeah, yeah. You would, you would, you would pay to, to get on like a flight. Yeah. They would have absolutely have that. So, you know, Total, nowadays, in modern times, totally avoidable. No excuse for this to happen. I guess there was really no reason for it to happen back then either, but there weren't as many safety nets. And like we say so many times, there were all these little things that lined up to, to cause this incident. But that's it for this episode. Uh, we're going to take next week off. We'll be back the week after that. Uh, we'll start doing some supplementary content. And then we'll be back in a couple weeks after that with uh, some more regular episodes again. Yeah. It's a great time to, like Chris said earlier, it's a great time to tell someone about the podcast, have them catch up. That way they can be all set when we come back with, uh, with brand new full incident episodes. Yeah. Thank you, everyone who helps support us. And please consider uh, getting some merch. Yeah. It's a, it's a great time to pick up some merch. We, like I said, go to store.roosterteeth.com or look for the links in our link tree. Oh, oh, oh. What are we posting pictures up real quick? Uh, right now, my plan is to post a picture of the Illusion 76 with the high tail, like I said. I'm going to see if I can find a diagram of how the two planes collided. That way you can see. I'm going to try to post a picture of the little flight strips with the altitudes written down. Oh, that'll be That cool. the air traffic controllers used to use. And the difference between anhedral and dihedral wings as they attach to a fuselage. Just so in case you didn't picture that when we talked about it earlier, you'll be able to see exactly what I was talking about. And were there any pictures of... Or, or, or videos of, of the planes colliding or that? There's no video. Uh, the only pictures I think that exist are like debris fields on mm -hmm. the ground, which, I mean, it's not really... Yeah. There's nothing Real, unique yeah. about that to this incident. That's why I'm trying to find things that are uh, unique that, to what we talked about. But yeah, that's it. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Black Box Down Pod. Okay, for real, for real. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>